Thank you very much for um, coming along tonight for what should be a fantastic evening of debate and discussion. Um, I'm Mike Savage. I'm director of the International Inequalities Institute here at the LSE. Before I introduce today's uh, speakers, I want to briefly mention that um, I've been director of the International Inequalities Institute for three years, four years, uh, and we're about to launch some new research themes. And this event is specifically timed to mark the launch of an event of a, of a theme I am leading around the questions of wealth, elites, and tax justice. So we have a number of new researchers at the LSC, a number of PhD students and academics, and over the coming three years, you'll see a lot of activity from us, beginning with an event um, on Monday night, uh, which I believe is also sold out, but if you can, if you can get access or just watch it on YouTube, you are welcome. So um, I'm very excited about that, and I'm really excited about tonight's um, event as a, as a means of launching the significance of these themes. Um, and let me briefly introduce the speakers. So um, Guy Standing is a, a very familiar figure to, to all of us who are concerned with questions of social justice, political activism. Um, he is a prof professorial research associate at SOAS, He's also economic advisor to John McDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor. He's a council member of the Progressive Economy Forum, and he's known for his extensive writings on universal basic income um, and on the precariat. And, of course, the, the event tonight is focusing upon launching his new book, which will be available for sale to the first few people who can, who can queue up <laughs> afterwards um, on the theme of the plunder of the commons. So, Guy will be speaking for half an hour or so, introducing the book. And then we're really, really lucky, really privileged to have two fantastic, extremely well-known discussants who will each be speaking for, for about ten minutes. Caroline Lucas will follow Guy. He's, she's the MP for Brighton Pavilion since 2009, a former MEP, a former leader of the Green Party. Um, and a few years ago, she was named as one of the 50 people who could save the planet. It's quite an accolade. It's me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, David Lammy, uh, well-known campaigning MP for the Labour Party, MP for Tottenham, well-known for his campaigning around issues such as Windrush, uh, Grenfell Towers and Brexit, former minister in the Labour government, minister of culture and for higher education. He has a forthcoming book on tribes to be coming out in a few months' time, and we hope we can get him to, to launch it here too. So it's a fantastic uh, evening. Without further ado, let me pass on to Guy. Well, thank you very much for turning out tonight. Every event has an opportunity cost. You could be doing many other things, so I thank you very much for coming. This is uh, an interesting subject, but I want to begin by mentioning that on November the 6th, 1217, a 10-year-old boy king was in St. Paul's when the regent and a representative of the Pope put their seals to two documents. And those two documents are the foundation stones of the British Constitution. We all know that we don't have a written constitution, but these two documents have always been regarded as the foundation stones of our Constitution. One of them has gone down to be taught to every child in schools 
across this country and most of the world, and it became that day the Magna Carta. The other document is less well known, but for hundreds of years it was regarded as a leading document rather than a secondary document. It was also called a Magna Carta, but it was called the Carta de Forista, the Charter of the Forest. And it's a remarkable document because it was longer on the British statute books than any other piece of legislation, only being finally repealed in 1971, which I think you'll all agree is quite a thing for longevity. And the Charter of the Forest was the first environmental charter, the first charter to assert that every person has a right to subsistence, a right to work, a right to a home in the commons. And it's often been called the Charter of the Common Man. But that day actually also was marking the first advance for feminism because it gave widows rights where they had never had them before. Now the Charter of the Forest had to be read out four times a year in every church in England for many generations. But it's gone into disuse, should we put it that way, and has been forgotten. And when, in 2015, the Minister of Justice in the House of Lords was asked if there were going to be celebrations for the 800th anniversary, he snuffily said, no, it's not important. As it happened, at roughly the same time, a leading member of the American Bar Association wrote to me and said, actually, the Charter of the Forest was more important than the Magna Carta in formulating the US Constitution. And the essence of the Charter is that it enshrined in our thinking and in our history respect for the commons. What are the commons? The commons belong to nobody, and they belong to all of us. They're not private property, they're not state property. They are the resources that we share on the ground, under the ground, the air, the water, the minerals, the many things that could be turned into resources for production. But they're also the social amenities and social services and institutions of our culture and our education that stem from our history. They're the things that come into us as society. And that word society is a key word because the book begins by recalling a notorious statement in a rambling interview that Margaret Thatcher gave after the 1987 election in which she said, there is no such thing as society. Sure, you're all aware of her statement. And I've always thought that actually what she really meant was there should be no such thing as society. Because society stands against the market. And she drew her inspiration from a man who spent some time at this institution, uh, Frederick von Hayek. And Frederick von Hayek was 
a disciple of the Austrian School of Economics and was Margaret Thatcher's guru and Ronald Reagan's guru. And the message he'd taken from the Austrian School of Economics was that something that has no price has no value. And therefore, you can give it away or sell it at a discount and take what windfall gains you wish. And her attitude to commons and society and the institutions epitomized that total contempt she had for institutions of social solidarity. So you can interpret what has happened to the commons beginning with the Thatcher years, but continuing through New Labour and, most dramatically, in the austerity decade that we are just in at the moment, as the plunder of the commons. Now, I want to mention, before I continue with how the plunder has taken place, a wonderful essay that was written by an amateur economist, the Earl of Lauderdale, in 1804. And he wrote this essay in which he actually defined what came to be known for generations of economists as the Lauderdale Paradox. And the Lauderdale Paradox essentially was this, that as private riches grow, public wealth declines. It's a paradox. And basically his essay is about how the loss of the commons enriching a minority enables them to put up prices of things that were not commodified and create contrived scarcity. A very nice phrase. And you can see the play out of the Lauderdale paradox, which modern economists tend to forget or ignore, in how the commons have been plundered. And I'll give you one set of statistics. In the 1970s, private wealth in this country was approximately 300% of GDP. Today, it's approximately 700% of GDP. In the 1970s, public wealth was worth about 50% of GDP. Today, it's negative. That's a huge change in the ratio of private wealth and public wealth. And wealth inequality is much, much, much greater than income inequality in this country and in many other countries. And anybody who says that inequality has not grown in the last decade is either naive or an idiot or fundamentally dishonest or all of the above. Because wealth inequality is what has really taken place. Now, the interesting thing is the commons, if you look back in medieval history, whenever there was a dispute about what was the commons and what was not a commons, they used to go around the neighborhood looking for the eldest people they could find and get them to come forward, probably had to drag them in their 80s. And if they testified before the local magistrates that something had existed 
and there was a wonderful expression of time out of mind of man. In other words, it had existed since nobody could remember. And gradually that rule became enshrined in legislation so that it was 20 years without being contested. So it was shortened. So something is a commons if it has been in existence as a commons for 20 years. So our National Health Service, for example, became a commons in 1968, 20 years after it had been established as a commons. Now what has happened to our commons? The book divides the commons into five types. The first, which is what most people think about when they talk about the commons, is the natural commons, the land, the seabeds, the air, the water, etc. And in this respect, there have been five waves of enclosure of our land to the extent where Britain is the most concentrated land ownership country in the world. And those five waves of enclosure has essentially transferred what were the commons to private ownership. So the Tudors did it, then we saw happening under, the, under Charles I and Cromwell did it. It goes on, it goes on into the Victorian era when there were 5,000 or more enclosure acts. And of course the greatest grabbing of the commons was by the Duke of Sutherland. The Duke of Sutherland in Scotland in the infamous clearances drove 50,000 crofters into the slums of Glasgow or into early death or abroad and took the little matter of 1.5 million acres of land. Today you will be delighted to know the Duke of Sutherland, his descendant, has the biggest and best private art collection in the country and magnanimously he allows some of us to be able to see part of the collection from time to time, <laughs> if you're prepared to pay. Another man who has benefited from enclosure, I love, I love this man's name so I like saying it, so apologies if I bore you, the Duke of Buccleuch. Now, the current Duke of Buccleuch happens to be the tenth descendant of an illegitimate child of Charles II. And he inherited the little matter of 277,000 acres of land. Now, that's not bad, really. But he also benefits from having received millions of pounds, and I'm not exaggerating, millions of pounds in subsidies from the successive governments. It should be a scandal. But a lot of big landowners have taken the land. And what Thatcher did, of course, was when she privatized school playgrounds, she took away part of our commons. When she privatized council housing, the land that had been part of our commons became private property, and paradoxically today, much of those council houses that she so-called privatized are now owned by landlords. But in addition, when she privatized water, I'll talk about this briefly in a moment, she gave the new water companies a little matter of 424,000 acres of what had been common land. 
424,000, many of which were not adjacent to water supply. So you can see the process of a privatization of land with enclosure. And it's continued in the, in the sense that our forestry commission, which the Tories and Lib Dems tried to privatize in 2011, in the last 10 years has sold off 11,000 hectares of what are our forests. They have no right to be selling it off or commercializing, as I describe in the book. Now, we've seen a loss of village greens. We've seen our parks under duress. We have 27,000 parks. And because of austerity with cutting budgets, local authorities have not been able to maintain those parks. And in a survey in 2016, 92% of all park managers reported that their parks were under serious deterioration. Not only that, they were having to sell off land and convert part of their parks into what I called, and I don't think it's original, eventism. So public events have to take place in parks in order to pay for maintenance. Battersea Park seems to be an extreme case. They have 600 events each year, which does tremendous damage to the grass, the trees, etc., etc. Now, the other parts of the commons discussed in the book include the loss of urban trees. We've lost 110,000 urban trees in the last few years. It includes the biggest scandal of all, in my view, which is the privatization of water in 1989. What happened was they created nine regional monopolies, private companies, which promptly got huge subsidies from the government and then started to load up those companies with debt and send billions, 18 or 19 billion is my calculation, in profit abroad. Because mainly they are owned by private equity capital now. As if that wasn't enough, the water companies have failed to maintain the pipes. So many of the water companies are losing more water through leakages than are actually supplied to homeowners. But recently, Thames Water was fined, a miserable little fine, for having poured 1.4 billion tons of untreated sewage into the Thames estuaries. 1.4 billion, endangering human life, endangering wildlife, and leading to a situation where with other companies, water companies, today a report says, came out last month, that none of our rivers in England are fit for swimming or drinking water. They got a slap on the wrist so did several other companies. Those companies have even been able to negotiate with the regulator over how much fine they will pay. What, how much should we pay? How much would you like to pay? This is ridiculous. I think you will agree. 
That story to me is one of the scandals of privatization creating contrived scarcity of water, a fundamental part of our commons. It goes on with other parts of the natural commons. I don't have time to talk about them now. They're detailed in the book. The second type of commons are the social commons. The social commons include our housing, which has been in the public domain. We've set a situation where today we have two million fewer council housing units than we did in the 1980s. Two million lost. Social housing has also been slashed. So what has happened is there has been a huge increase, as if most of you didn't know this, in rough sleeping, homelessness. I saw some figures recently where the number of homeless has risen tenfold in the last five years. And two people die every single day on our streets because they don't have homes. And we're meant to be the fifth richest country in the world. Thousands of people have been made homeless, unable to afford a minimal home. But it's not just the homeless thing, which I detail in the book. We've also seen a privatization of something which, when I was a student, we regarded as part of the university system, and that's student digs. Today, 80% of all student accommodation is privately provided. And guess what? The biggest supplier is an American bank, Goldman Sachs. So today, our commons, which were part of the education system, are now being controlled by financial capital. And there's a bigger story here. Because as I was working on the book, I said, Guy, you're missing something. You're, you, you, you're, you're dumb. Because what is the real story? The story I was telling about privatization, commodification, the loss of the social memory, all of these things are there. But what is the biggest story of all? It's the fact that we have experienced a colonization of our commons. In all respects that go, that go through in the book, you find private equity, foreign capital, is actually the biggest owner. They've been taking over. And it goes to with POPs. I love that word, POPs. Privately owned public spaces. Today, large parts of our cities and towns are being converted into POPs. And when dear old Boris Johnson was campaigning to become mayor of London, he bemoaned the corporatization of London. He said he was going to stop it. The first thing he did when he became mayor was he went, all expenses paid, lavish trip to the Far East, to Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, and various other places, urging property companies and others to come and buy bits of London. So today we have Singapore on Thames, we have Malaysia Square, we, the London Mayor's HQ is foreign owned. We have Paternoster Square owned by Mitsubishi. And large parts of other towns, less ceremonially documented, have been moving in the same 
direction. I look at the social commons and I see the various parts. Very specific areas that Guy has already touched on briefly, the welfare system, our natural environment and our digital commons. Because when it comes to the welfare system, I think we have a real opportunity to reimagine our relationship with the state. And even for those of us who absolutely reject the kind of the austerity narrative that kind of says that, well, scroungers have been bringing the welfare system down to its knees and we have to punish them, even for those of us who, of course, reject that, I think there can still be sometimes something that creeps into our analysis about Social Security that is at odds with the reality. I think too often we've become accustomed to thinking about Social Security as a kind of glorified charity, something of a, of a favour, not something which is a fundamental right in any civilised society. Because we've been conditioned to forget that that right is part of citizenship. And it is not conditional on previous good conduct. It is not conditional, for example, on a record of previous payments into a system that has systematically discriminated, particularly against women and carers in the past, for example. I think Guy's book allows us to think about turning that around and recognizing that you know, the Department for Work and Pensions is frankly dependent on us, not the other way around. We, the people, employ the state to carry out a simple administrative task on our behalf, the collection and distribution of some of our resources for the common good. And that should be the bottom line of how we look at welfare and social security going forward. And to politicize that contract or to use it to punish people for being disabled or homeless or young or for certain of the life choices that they've made, as has been done by successive governments, I think is a complete breach of the social contract. So the current debate on welfare is framed by the idea that spending on welfare is somehow a bad thing. It's something we've got to try to stop doing, we've got to cut it. But that's like saying that the NHS is failing because it has to treat the victims of road accidents. The real problem is governments making employment a core economic goal, rather than the goal of our economy being, as I think it should be, the well-being of all of its people. Because the current way of thinking about uh, the economy and, and the idea that we've got to chase more and more GDP growth and we've got to chase more and more jobs, whether or not they're good jobs or bad jobs, means that we, in a sense, have an easy short-term route of prioritizing GDP growth above everything else, and that relies on two delusions. First, that in a richer country, everyone will benefit. And second, that rising GDP will mean more jobs, more security, and crucially, a better quality of life. Because in fact, since the 1980s, we've seen greater inequality, rising poverty of opportunity, greater job insecurity, and deep-rooted chronic unemployment blighting the lives of millions of fellow citizens. And that has happened even as, if you look at it in total, GDP appears to be rising. So the Green Party wants to turn that on its head, starting with the proposed basic income that Guy has written so compellingly about. A single payment made to everyone as a fundamental right which replaces benefits for those not in paid work and replaces tax credits and allowances for those who are. And I think the benefits of that are manifold, with one of them being an opportunity to restore a moral basis to our welfare system. Because a basic income would embed the principle of our collective well-being as the most valuable goal of any welfare system 
and indeed of any economic system. And so I really appreciate what Guy says about that in his book. He says the case for instituting a basic income as an anchor in our new 21st century income distribution system does not rest on the common assumption that robots and artificial intelligence will cause mass unemployment or that it would be a more efficient way of relieving poverty than current social assistance, although it would. The main arguments are ethical. And I think that's a really exciting moment, really, to put ethics back at the heart both of our economy and of our welfare system. Now, there are numerous pilots of schemes that are happening around the world that we can learn from in terms of how we might roll out a basic income. But the one that I take most hope from is actually a tiny one that Rutger Brehman writes about in his book, Utopia for Realists. He explains, and I, and I quote, there was a small experiment in London, it was very small, with 13 homeless men. They each received 3,000 pounds as a personal budget to spend how they wanted. A lot of people were very skeptical of that experiment, but a year later, nine of the 13 had a roof over their head. Two more had applied for housing and it actually saved everyone a lot of money. The experiment cost 50,000 pounds in total and probably saved hundreds of thousands in all of the associated costs of those men remaining homeless. So I think that pilot is powerful because it challenges all of our assumptions and the twisted ideologies that underpin our current welfare system, most notably that threats and fear alone are how you motivate people whilst kindness and compassion are signs of weakness. I think such a deeply misanthropic take on humanity is anathema to my belief in the commons and to its inherent potential for allowing us all to live larger lives. But it's not only humans that might flourish if we reimagine our relationship between our economic and our social goals. I think there's also a powerful case for basic income helping with the biggest moral, political and economic crisis that we face right now, and that is the climate and nature emergency. Now, as authors of The Human Plant, Simon Lewis and Mark Maslin write, to usher in a new way of living, the core dynamic of ever greater production and consumption of goods and resources must be broken, and a citizen's income would be a significant step towards limiting and breaking the link between work and consumption. So as you know, our current economic model is basically designed with consumption as the payback for being ever more productive at work. Essentially... Thank you, Caroline. And last but not least, David Lemmy. So um, the good news is that Guy and Caroline and myself are friends. Um, and they're such good friends that for an event that's meant to end at 8 o'clock uh, and allow half an hour for questions, they've allowed me three minutes time with you. Um, so we're going to have to stray a bit beyond that. Um, it's also to say that this book is so on point um, that hot off the press, um, we find out that Boris Johnson is seeking to prorogue Parliament again uh, from next Tuesday. So you see that this desire to abolish the commons is 
seriously a political project. Look, I'm biased because Guy Standing is a professor at SOAS, uh, where I studied. Um, so, of course, I'm biased that this is a brilliant book. But as I, I mean, I have been talking to Guy as he was writing this book and actually thinking about my own book, I want to just offer some reflections because I think that this is almost a sort of manifesto, in a sense, for how we might begin to come back together again in a post-Brexit environment. Now, you know what I want that environment to be, but even those of us who would argue quite passionately that it's in our best interest to remain within the European Union, I hope, and I know Caroline's led on this subject as well, we're also of the view that serious reform is necessary both within our country and within the European Union. So the first place I want to start is just reflecting a bit on why, why we all sat here, listened to Guy, and sat in silence and in awe, and in that familiar academic environment where we were learning so much in half an hour that we did not own, that we did not know before. And I want to suggest that there is a serious problem that this sense of the common has not been owned by the people or by the civic. Great research, something that um, was established in the 13th century, but not something that was owned by the people. Why is that? What's that about? And it must cut to the heart, to some, in some respects, as to the kind of country that we are. Now, um, I'm concerned and I raised this in my first book, about the liberalism that came out of the Enlightenment that gets us to this point. If you bring that right up to date into the 20th century, um, we of course celebrate two major revolutions. First, the um, social liberal revolution of the 1960s, brings ethnic minorities to this room, brings women to this room, uh, gaining ownership over their own bodies for, because of the invention of the pill and women's rights and other things, gay men and women to this room. Um, we celebrate that and my party owns much of that agenda in this country. But what it did also was it gave us a powerful sense of our individual rights and sometimes our collective rights, if we were part of a group. And look, I spend a lot of time defending minorities in this country. But that sense of shared, a shared community, uh, somehow sometimes weakened by that powerful sense of my right, me, myself and I, but not what we all share. The second, of course, deeply pernicious, is the laissez-faire, 
liberal economic, neoliberal economic agenda that has decimated any sense of what we share. It means that we live in a society that attaches far more value, if you like, to the consumer and to the client um, and very little value to the citizen. But even if, even as I say the phrase citizen, the truth is in this country, we're not citizens. We're subjects. As we found out when Jacob Rees-Mogg tricked the Queen. I've got to tell you, uh, for Boris Johnson, I mean, I know he's been, um, you know, he's wronged quite a number of women over the years, but to pick on a 93-year-old monarch <laughs> is saying something. But it goes back to this sense that we are subjects. And so what is powerful in this proposition is also that sense that we can finally own what is common and have a stake in what is common, not just rely on others to preach that to us. But what will it require? Well, I think it's got to require um, some sort of written constitution. And the need for that is now patently clear. If we don't put this stuff down, if we don't hold up our thinkers and say that this is a moment, then how can, we, how can we possibly own this stuff, I think, is essential. The other is um, reimagining our local space and what we share locally. This is that, and, and that is a sense that when I think of that common, and it came across in those early chapters, actually it takes you to local and neighbourhood level in terms of owning and occupying that common. And of course, in our country, the local has been decimated. It's vanished. Local authorities are not powerful organisations. My local authority, uh, the London Borough of Haringey, has lost 59% of its real terms funding. But the reality of that loss is not just financial. It's actually losing less and less control over what you deliver, what you offer in that common sense. Guy talked about council housing, uh, but I lament and am deeply concerned about quality youth services. Right. And we see, of course, in our capital city, the decimation of life and values for so many young people leading to this current crisis of murder and knife crime. That is a loss of the common and what we own and what we share. And it does also a story of impoverishment, a story of great, great bitterness. And in this toxic atmosphere, where there's an absence of what we share, what we have collectively, of the common, come the shysters. It's the populist nationalists that come along and they sell you a different story. It's not a story about what we can 
come together on and share. It's not a story about a social common, a knowledge common, a civic common. It's a story that's as old as the Bible. It's basically, if you feel a sense of loss, if you, if there's a, if you don't feel a, a stake in your society, it's not their fault for denying you that ownership. It's Iqbal's fault for moving in next door. It's the European Union's fault for stripping you of this. It's basically the other. And the danger of that vision is what it then does, what it then corrodes and what's happening in our country is after a period, despite Thatcherism, where we might have had a civic nationalism which we can all share, which we can all buy into, wherever you're from in the country, whatever your background, we get this virulent, nasty, ethnic nationalism in which there is a pecking order and so many of us are lower down that pecking order because somebody else came and took the little that you have. And it's why I think this agenda is so hugely, hugely important. And I just want to touch on a couple of other very important themes. The first is not to forget that when you hollow out, when you turn us all because of this hyped up, super individualized, liberal, neoliberal culture, you, you also get a powerful sense that when the going gets tough, you are on your own. And when you create that culture, you get a crisis of mental health. You get a crisis of loneliness. It's rampant across both our culture and many Western cultures. Technology driving some of it, but a huge amount of loneliness at the core of our society. This morning, I got the most horrendous death threat. Um, language was all racist. It was because of my position on Brexit, but it was the determination to see me dead in Tottenham that really chilled my staff and me. I have no doubt that the individual that wrote that, because I've been to the cases I've seen, is desperately lonely, feels a desperate impoverishment in the community from which they come. We have to do this, we have to sort this out if we don't want to turn in on ourselves and become ever more both politically tribal but also socially tribal. That's the consequences of not addressing this agenda. It's also to say, when we talk about the common, and this is where um, my book, uh, that guys give me some useful advice on, that come out um, early next year, kicks in. When we talk about the common, the phrase I use in my book is how can we develop an encounter culture? Because, of course, the whole idea of the common is that you come across one another. You're not there in your individualized silos. You are meeting and interacting. Uh, you are sharing. That was the joy of the night school vision I gave you before. That's the joy of creating wonderful libraries 
creating wonderful parks and places where people can be that have not been commercialized or taken away. It's how do we encounter one another in a modern sense. I'd like to see, for example, a compulsory civic service where our young people can come together. Why do I say that? Because it's great for young people here at the LSE and at Russell Group Universities and at universities broader than that, but I worry hugely about young people uh, in this country who are not academic, who do not come to university, who get a very, very different deal and settlement in this country. And so I say, where do our young adults actually come together for a civic common purpose? And that's a question that I think we've got to ask ourselves most definitely. And rather than leaving it to individual initiative and to community initiative, and you know, a good example of that are food banks, which of course are common, but are desperately depressing and sad to see in our society. How can the state, how can what we pay our taxes for, step back into a space that creates a safety net? In a few weeks' time, you'll see um, Ken Loach's new film, which is effectively about what Guy wrote previously on the precariat. It's about zero-hour contracts. And as I watch this poignant, powerful Ken Loach film, I reflected on a society in which, and this is not, you know, the idea of, I'd hate that phrase, the gig economy, because it sort of yeah. evokes Shoreditch and a playwright who's doing Deliveroo at the weekends. Uh, I, <laughs> Ken Loach's film is about what Guy wrote about previously. It's about how this culture strips families of their dignity and their humanity. Um, it's about that choice and that ramped up individualism that I talked about that's actually not a real choice. You're not really given that choice when you're given this contract and this pick and mix. You're actually denied hours, can't sleep, poor money, fall into debt, all of those things. Um, but what was powerful, what was powerful and what came across to me was the stripping away of a safety net. And if we are honest about the common, we must put back the safety net. Now, we, we always have to refresh our politics. And I think in thinking about the precariat previously, and now thinking about the common, what we share, there's a potential here. Because for those who might sit on the political left, what is social or what is socialist, we have potentially a new vision and a new manifesto. But actually, for those who might see themselves on, I'm not going to say the, because these days the right is not where the right used to be. It's, you know, it's not a hard right. But for those on the center right, of course, when you think about the common and you think about our heritage, and you think about a tradition that goes back to the 13th century, there's something deeply conservative 
to conserve about this agenda. So there's something in this for everyone, and I recommend it to you. And by the big tech companies. Thank you. Okay, let's go over here, yeah, in the, the cap. Oh, yeah, um, it was a great lecture, but one of the problems that I have with the left at the moment, I mean, I'm on the left myself politically, is we seem to spend 80% of the time talking about what the problem is, and then about 20% of the time talking about potential solutions, but not really envisaging a life with those solutions in place. It's kind of like we're missing the story aspect that the right is getting right. That's why the right won Brexit. They gave us, the people, a story. Um, whether it be true or not, and, and the left just doesn't seem to be giving us that story. So I think it's not really a question, forgive me, I'm an engineer rather than uh, an economist, so we usually tend to think if something's buggered, how do we fix it, and we, we concentrate on that. Um, so for me, I'd just like to see the left sort of concentrate a bit more on that. Tell us the story of how we're going to make this world a better place, because I believe we can, and I think you're all exceptional examples of the people that can lead us there so just try and concentrate on the uh, on the story a little bit more of of what we're going to do and how we're going to get there let's go over here i'm trying to we've got, we'll work around the room for a few more minutes and then get some some responses hey, who would like to speak over here uh i'm looking for a bit more diversity any any women want to speak over there yeah. uh, female yes in the no that's the, the, the Hurry up, up with the stripe. No, to the right, to the right. That's it. I'll take it. <laughs> of course, yeah. Um, Kate Ashbrook from the Open Spaces Society. Brilliant talks. Thank you, everybody. Um, I really love Guy's um, 44 articles, his charter for the commons, and I really want to see that happen. I mean, I'm interested particularly in the land commons, so um, stuff about freedom to roam and greater rights and greater sharing and um, public forests, all that is wonderful. So how is it going to happen? We absolutely have to get together and make it happen. We can't just go on talking. We've got to do. So, Guy, tell us what's to happen next. <laughs> what? <laughs> One more question, and I'll ask the panel to speak. Who would like to... Yeah, here. Front. Make the microphone. In the past, the defence of commons uh, happened uh, quite violently. We had the English Civil War, and uh, now we have the Hong Kong situation where the defense of commons has led to confrontations between the people and the state. Is that what will take to get your 44, uh, uh, your 44, um, your manifesto to get through? Because, like the engineer said, we can't just sit on our hands and do nothing. And uh, historically, uh, the gentleman beh uh, beside me says pitchforks, and it seemed to have worked for America. And how do you disassociate to the idea of the commons from how of the impact it had on the Aboriginal peoples around the world? And can you use the commons to as an alternative to reparations for the enslaved who were the victims of the commons in Europe? Okay, some great questions there. Um, uh, great questions. We could spend a lot more than five minutes addressing them. I think we should get some responses now. So, Guy, please, please respond as you see, what, as you see fit. 
Well, thank, thank you very much for the questions. Um, uh, Laura at the front. Uh, there's a small section in the book, I'm doing more work on it now, about the plunder of the blue commons. It's, where, it's the latest phase. One company in the world owns 47% of all patents that have been taken out on the oceans. That one company owns a flow of income that's going to stretch into the future. It's an extraordinary story, but it's a plunder of our commons. And it is a shocking story. And I, I understand where you're coming from. We need an international dimension. Of course we do. And I propose some, some ideas on that, and you have some better ones. So I think, I think it is an international. It's international, it's national, and it's local, as, as David was making, making very clear. On the surveillance capitalism and digital data, the, the section in the book, which is, in a sense, a response to, to your question, I strongly believe that we need a big digital data levy so that 3% or 5% of all income generated by the big tech companies in this country should be effectively taxed. And that should be put into this fund that would be built up. And they pay hardly any corporation tax. They, they hardly pay any taxes. And, and, and I think it's very important, and this is part of the uh, charter that I recommend in the book, that we need a strategic strategic policy from all progressives, Labour parties, Green parties, whatever you name it, to roll back the intellectual property rights system. It is an absurdity that a company can take out a patent and often not actually want to do anything but stop others producing. A patent that is a result of publicly funded research which gives that company a monopoly profit stretching 20 years or 40 years into the future. It's completely unethical, it's completely immoral, and the research, as I mentioned in the book, shows in actual fact it does not stimulate innovation, which the defenders claim it does. It actually impedes innovation, it impedes technological change, and yet it gives monopolistic profit to a tiny number of plutocratic corporations. Part of the charter is that we should roll back the intellectual property rights system. The, the 44 articles are a narrative in a sense. And if I'd had a little bit more time, I would have spent more time on the actual articles. But what I've done in the past is when we've talked about how you would revive the commons, and Kate's points were excellent on that, and I learned so much from her and, and her group, is that you can identify an agenda with a lot of things that make up a narrative. We can revive our parks. We can get the right to roam strengthened. We can do so many things that are actually something that most people could agree on if we took the perspective that our commons has all those things that David was talking about. And the, the last question is the question that taxes my mind more than any other. How are we going to get there? And I think the answer is ourselves. All of us have a responsibility to look ourselves in the mirror and say, are we doing something to get a new progressive 
agenda into reality? Are we organizing the precariat? Are we actually taking part and organizing and participating and using up our time and, yes, money and energy in a cause in which we believe passionately? If we can answer that question honestly, yes, we are, then we'll be well on the way to having a new progressive politics. But I wish, I wish so powerfully I was aged 20-something. Because to me, this is the most exciting period because we know we need a new progressive politics, but it's only going to come if we get off our backside and really do the hard yards and get angry. We may not need a revolution, but we certainly must revolt. And that way, we'll get it. Thank you. Are working? Yes. Okay. Um, the, the question I wanted to focus on was the one about, about you know, why don't we have better stories? Because I humanity. If that is not an example of the plunder of the commons, I don't know what is. And if Bolsonaro isn't an example of borrowing from the Trump Boris rule book, I don't know what a national populist looks like. So I think that growing agenda is one to watch. I think you're absolutely right to raise those fundamental issues also of land that also have an international perspective. And there is no greater injustice than the injustice globally done to indigenous people all over the world. Um, and actually, in countries like South Africa that have had fundamental systems of subjugation and oppression, some might argue, and if Winnie Mandela were on this stage, she would have argued that even where you've had truth and reconciliation, the bit that was left off was land. And it remains the contested issue in uh, countries like South Africa. Um, and I mean, I, I suppose globally we have these fantastic organizations that came out of war in Europe that gave us organizations like UNESCO, which is the idea that heritage that sits in one country should be globally protected because of what it says for humanity. And we need to deepen and widen those notions of what we share. The point that was raised about the story we're telling is fantastically well made. Um, it is definitely the case that um, on so many levels that if you compare, let's take the simple narrative story of Brexit. One said, take back control. I think that's probably one of the most powerfully um, selfish, meaningless slogans, but bloody effective in modern times. And the other said, better together. And the, frankly, the better together did not say enough. Um, the take back control was this sort of poignant idea. You know, we all feel out of control in our lives in different points. What take back, what the, you know, somehow you could get it back, you could rein it in. It was very powerful. The left does struggle with telling those stories. And, I mean, in my experience in 20 years in politics, there are three kinds of elections. There are status quo elections, where it's very likely the country is going to vote for the 
incumbent government. People broadly want more of the same. Let's give them another go. Let's see. They're quite boring elections. Um, um, Labour had one in 2005. It was clear that we weren't going to lose. Then there are fear elections. The right do those very well. George Bush did it successfully in the United States a number of times. Uh, Thatcher did them very convincingly. And we've got a ramped up version with the double act of Farage and Boris. Um, and then there are hope elections. My friend Barack Obama did that in the States. And indeed, the Blair government of 1997 did that. It says something about when you're on the progressive end, whether it's the centre or the left, hope is a key ingredient of the story you've got to tell. And you are right. The temptation on the left is to sink into the critique. And it is not usually sufficient. There's also a tendency, um, I saw this in the Gordon Brown period, New Labour period, and we're doing it a bit, uh, unfortunately. It's a bit like opening up the old yellow pages. You get this list of things, but nothing that binds them together about the kind of society that you're trying to create. So look, I'm going to have a little attempt in the book that I've got coming out, but it's a little one. Did he mention he's having a book coming out? Um, I had a first attempt in my last book. But no, but seriously, <laughs> seriously, it's quite, it is to say it's quite hard because Caroline is right about the, the better nature of ourselves. But that sort of selfish, me, myself and I, competitive, it's their fault, not yours, is very powerful. It's why those of us on the left and the progressive side of the debate have to work harder, have to strain our brains stronger than too often I see us doing. Okay. Thank you.